when it comes to ensuring your company has top-notch security practices. Things can get complicated fast. With Vanta, you can automate compliance for SOC 2, ISO 27001, HIPAA, and more. Vanta's market-leading trust management platform can help you unify security program management with a built-in risk register and reporting and streamline security reviews with AI-powered security questionnaires. Over 7,000 fast-growing companies like Atlassian, Flow Health, and Quora use Vanta to manage risk and prove security in real time. You can watch Vanta's on-demand video at vanta.com slash decoder to learn more. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash decoder. Support for this podcast comes from another podcast. The world's most valuable resource, it's actually data. Our data, based on our behaviors, is frequently being gathered, tracked, stored, and sold. So what does this mean for us? Join host Rafi Krikorian for season two of Technically Optimistic, where he'll take you on a deep dive into how our data is being used and what we can do about it. From social media feeds to foundational human rights, Krikorian leads us into territories both familiar and unexpected with openness and genuine curiosity. New episodes of Technically Optimistic drop every Wednesday. Listen now wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to Decoder. I'm Neil Patel, editor-in-chief of The Verge, and Decoder is my show about big ideas and other problems. All right, let's talk about the metaverse. If you're interested in tech, or you just pay a lot of attention to industry buzzwords, you probably can't stop hearing about the metaverse. It's in startup pitches, it's in earnings reports, some companies have created entire metaverse divisions. Mark Zuckerberg changed Facebook's entire name to Meta to signal that he's shifting the whole company to focus on the metaverse. The problem with that, of course, is that no one knows what the metaverse is, what it's supposed to do, or why anyone should care about it. Luckily, we have some help. Today, I'm talking to Matthew Ball, who's the author of a new book called The Metaverse and How It Will Revolutionize Everything. It is a very confident title. Matthew was once the global head of strategy at Amazon Studios, but in 2018, he left Amazon to become an analyst and actually started writing about the metaverse on his blog. So he's been writing about this for four years, way before all this hype exploded, and he wants the book to be the best resource for understanding the metaverse. Matthew sees the metaverse as the next phase of the internet, not just something you access through a VR headset, although that'll be part of it, but how you'll interact with everything. And as we talk about in the interview, that sort of change is where new companies have the opportunity to unseat the old guard. There's also a bunch of related ideas that might be connected and even really important, like Web3 and the idea of digital ownership. Matthew and I talked for a long time. This episode's really in the weeds, but I wanted to push on the details and really try and understand the decisions some companies have made around building digital worlds and the technical and business challenges that might slow it down. Or even stop the whole thing from ever happening. And of course, I asked Matthew whether any of this metaverse stuff is a good idea in the first place. Because, well, I'm not so sure I want other companies in between me and the experience of reality. But there's a lot here. So listen, and then you tell me. Okay, Matthew Ball, author of The Metaverse and How It Will Revolutionize Everything. Here we go. Matthew Ball, you're the managing partner of Apillion and the author of a new book called The Metaverse and How It Will Revolutionize Everything. 
Welcome to Decoder. Glad to be here. I got to say, you're also the proprietor of like an excellent Twitter feed about the metaverse. And that's like, do you think of Twitter as your primary platform? I do. It's my most used app. TikTok is creeping up there. And of course, my screen time doesn't register Fortnite, but it is definitely my primary channel and also where I learn the most as well. So let me ask you, you have been tweeting about the metaverse for uh, quite some time. You obviously have a big audience about stuff on Twitter. Just from like a media nerd perspective, why turn it into a book? What's really fascinating to me about this topic, and thanks for the tee up, I started writing about it in 2018. And that was based on this belief that this truly century old idea, the term comes from the early 90s, but the ideas span back until the 30s was finally practical. That is to say, we could start building it. We could start trying to realize it. And over the following years, I got smarter in the area. I received more inputs from other people. More projects came to bear. And then suddenly last year, it became the word du jour, not just in Facebook renaming themselves, but Google did a reorg. Amazon started redoing job descriptions. Many of the fastest growing companies in media tech, Roblox, Unity, Epic, wrap themselves around the theme. And yet there was very little actually articulating what it is, why it mattered, what the challenges were. And so I was really excited about crystallizing that, distilling my thinking into something more concrete, updating the things that I got wrong, making sure that it was comprehensible. But the most important thing was actually social. Every time we have a platform shift, we have an opportunity to change which companies lead, which philosophies, which business models. And I think many people are coming out of the last 15 years dissatisfied with the lack of regulation, the take rates, the role of algorithms, monetization, which companies lead, who leads, frankly. And so the best way to positively affect that outcome was to be informed about what was next. That's the goal. So we got to start at the beginning. There's a couple chapters of the beginning of the book where you talk about that long history and how it has built up to this moment. And then the third chapter is called A Definition, Finally, which is great because I feel like the definition of the metaverse really does need that finally moment. What is your definition of the metaverse? So I cheat a little. I'm actually describing it in much the same way that if you take a look at the definition of the internet, it's TCPIP, the Internet Protocol Suite. The description is what's more helpful. I describe it as a massively scaled and interoperable networks of real-time rendered 3D virtual worlds, which can be experienced synchronously and persistently by an effectively unlimited number of users, each with an individual sense of presence. What I'm essentially describing is the technologies and capabilities and standards to support what is essentially a parallel plane of existence that spans all virtual worlds and the physical worlds. And from a human outcome, it means that an ever-growing share of our time, labor, leisure, spend, wealth, happiness, etc., will exist in virtual spaces. One of the key pieces of that definition is 3D virtual worlds. I've heard other definitions in the metaverse that are a little bit more expansive that get you to the place where I don't know, Wordle is the metaverse, right? We're all doing it together once a day. Um, <laughs> we exist in the universe of Wordle, however that universe is defined. But you're saying this has got to be 3D. It's got to be uh, effectively a video game, right? So you, you get to a place where Fortnite is the metaverse or Roblox or any number of other massively multiplayer online games. Does that count for you? 
It's really a question of what is versus what connects to and is part of it. I mean, look, my building in some regard that I'm speaking to you from right now is not the internet. It's not really on the internet, and yet it is part of the internet in one way, shape, or form. Wordle, of course, is mostly locally run on your device. You wouldn't really call it an internet service, but some of it is delivered. When you're talking about the metaverse as a new computing platform, 3D is, for me, a requirement. It's a requirement to do many new things, to elevate human existence, especially in key categories, healthcare, education, and so forth. But really, the term doesn't matter. What's in and out doesn't matter. It's likely we never say metaverse. In China, they've adopted the term hyper-digital reality. We may talk about the internet, but 3D, we may just use the term internet. What matters is really the real-time rendered element, which basically means the world as it exists is legible and changeable to software. And the advent of graphics compute doesn't need to be a game. It's just an expression. But let me push on the definition just a little bit. And I I understand what you're saying that it's really a description that matters and maybe this word goes out of fashion. But let me push on that description a little bit and that definition a little bit. Right now, you can log into Fortnite and you can run around with a bunch of friends in Fortnite. And Fortnite is cross-compatible with many different kinds of devices. It kind of doesn't matter what hardware you have in your house. You're just in a persistent online space where lots of other people are. Are you saying but for the fact that 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 Fortnite doesn't connect to Roblox, it is not the metaverse? Well, so this would be a little bit like saying if AOL ran on multiple different devices and a few different networks, is that the internet? You know, we, we could say it is. But in particular, if you talked about just AOL services, you would just be talking about a proprietary platform. You wouldn't be talking about a unified experience that spans into industry with myriad different outputs, multiple different servers, domain registrars. The metaverse is really describing that unified experience rather than a single expression, much like we wouldn't say Facebook is an internet or Facebook is the internet. When you're talking about Fortnite, there are certainly a whole bunch of things that don't fit there. It's not actually a persistent experience. There's actually very few people who can connect to it at one point, nominally 100 people in a match. But they use a bunch of cheats that basically mean that there are only really 12 people that matter. And it doesn't really connect into anything that isn't purely game-like and leisure-oriented. So if the definition of the internet at its most basic level is a network of networks, so you are connected to the network at your university or at work or your home network, and you can go out and then connect to... Amazon's network of servers and browse Amazon and then leave Amazon and connect to Facebook's network of servers and do Facebook stuff. That overarching network of networks, you're saying the metaverse is the same thing. It's the connectivity between multiple different 3D worlds. That's right. What I would push on there is that the internet did not have to be built that way. And the AOL example is very interesting because AOL did not want it to go that way. Yeah. And the value of AOL plummeted when it went from being a provider of first-party services like chat rooms and groups and email to an ISP that connected you to better versions of those services run by other people. What is the push for Epic Games or Roblox to enable that connectivity in a way that, you know, historically – the people who own those experiences, the second they gave them up, 
they faced a raft of competition. They became kind of like dumb pipes and they disappeared. Well, so let's pause for a second. Of course, that wasn't the necessary outcome for AOL. And in fact, we would know now that no matter how successful AOL might have been in expanding its geographic footprint in connectivity, the largest opportunity for them was in horizontal software and services. There's a world where AIM, AOL Instant Messenger, becomes one of the world's most significant communication platforms like WhatsApp or Snapchat. There's a world in which its search engine turns into one of the world's most dominant ad networks. Microsoft is a pretty good example of that. They have never had a smaller share of computing devices, hardware, or operating systems, but their horizontal business is far more valuable than Mm -hmm. ever. But when you're talking about what's the incentives, first of all, we're already seeing this progress. The Roblox founder and CEO has been talking a lot about their explicit designs for interoperability. They've open sourced some of their scripting languages. He's even talking about embracing NFTs to take some projects off of Roblox. But last week, the Metaverse Standards Forum was established by the Kronos Foundation, 28 companies from Qualcomm to Epic, Meta, and others, specifically to solve this problem. That is the easiest part, coming together. It's not forcing anyone yet to make a concession, to pick something that they didn't advocate for. But this is all in service of expanded network effects, utility. The belief is if 3D objects that are created can be used in more places, if consumers can buy 3D objects or encounter history that has more persistence, more utility, it will grow much like the world economy did through trade. Individual instances of compression, some markets, some products, some countries suffered from time to time, but the network was much stronger. And the last thing that I'll say is, you're right that the internet could have gone a different way, but we did have many competing internetworking standards. There was a point in time in the early 90s where the Department of Commerce and the Department of Defense disagreed. They pushed different standards. The idea that Comcast could email IBM, could email Telefonica, could email China Mobile was really not consensus. We had the protocol wars, but network effects and utility won out in the end. So the idea of a metaverse standards forum is very funny to me, particularly because we, you know, in covering consumer technology, you come up against standards bodies all the time. Totally. They are hyper political. I would not say that Bluetooth is an example of the tech industry making something great that everyone loves. Right. But it's, it's pervasive in its way. Um, the beginning of a standard is great. And that, that early energy is great. I think I'm just pushing on at some point, right. Dollars are going to get allocated across whatever the metaverse is. And owning the early access points in the metaverse seems really valuable. Is this race that we're in now or this amount of hype that we're in now, is it really about we're going to initiate the customer into whatever the metaverse is and make sure that, I don't know, every time you buy something in another 3D world, we get a 30% cut? Or is it, as you were saying at the beginning, the technical ability to start building an early version of what you might consider the metaverse is there, and that is net good. So we should just start doing it and see what happens along the way. I think, look, the latter is more likely, but it's more of an organic process. I mean, the truth of the matter is, if you take a look at one idea that we have long believed would have utility, which is a federated universal identity in digital space, 
Microsoft tried that multiple times. The .NET framework was the last big time that they tried that, but no one wanted it, right? And it was rarely deployed for many of the reasons you just mentioned. I don't want to use Microsoft's account system. What happened to be the best way to build the de facto standard for identity was Facebook. Started as a college hot or not. The best way to build a or the metaverse for Epic wasn't trying to build it. It happened to be a battle royale game that wasn't even intended to be a battle royale. That is to say that this process starts from building something tangential that is 3D oriented and social that connects into another thing. Then you start to get organic kind of alignment around that standard set. The number of examples where someone or even a group says, this is the thing, let's all do it. You're right to be skeptical. Rarely happens that way. It's actually more power based. The reason I, I'm pushing on it is you have described the metaverse now as this parallel reality that you can live in and transact in that will grow an economy that mirrors the world economies because we'll figure out some way to have scarce digital goods. And I will come to the blockchain portion of this conversation later, but that's what you're describing. In science fiction, where the word metaverse comes from, that vision is always dystopian. You, in the book, you refer to Neil Stevenson's Snow Crash a lot. And you point out that the metaverse and Snow Crash made life in the real world notably worse. That is the the heart of the the tension for me, is that the idea that we'll build a parallel world and end up as so many brains and vats transacting on other people's platforms. Mm -hmm. There's like a I have an instinctive recoil from that in a way that makes me skeptical of the entire enterprise because I, I think life in the real world is actually rich and rewarding. And I don't know, I can go out and touch grass and Apple or Google or Facebook or Epic or whoever does not get in the way of me doing that. Like fundamentally, what makes this not the dystopia that it is always described as? <laughs> so I agree with a lot of that and I disagree with some of it. The literature for the metaverse and its kind of antecedents is dystopic. But one of the important reasons why that's the case is because human drama is the root of most drama, which is the point of most fiction, especially science fiction. Put another way, utopias tend not to make for much human drama. And so it's true that when you look at Neuromancer, you look at The Matrix, Ready Player One, I go down to the 1930s, Philip K. Dick, Isaac Asimov, these virtual planes of existence are not described favorably. Why? Because even when they're not negative in and of themselves, they lead to some disengagement with reality. And that's the problem. The technology is amoral. The consequences are not. But when you take a look at the actual examples to build these things, whether that's multi-user shared hallucinations in the 70s, Second Life, some of the other metaverse style experiences from the 90s, the 2000s with Roblox and later Fortnite, the tone is very different. It's not dystopic. It is creation, exploration identification, collaboration, those are all very important. But at the end of the day, I don't know that scarcity is that important. This is actually where I think I disagree with many of my peers in the investing community, especially as it relates to the blockchain. I don't really get virtual land, certainly not scarce <laughs> virtual land. You know, the, the two brilliant things about the internet among all are network effects and zero marginal costs trying to then say, let's create a next version of the internet that constrains networks through money and that 
introduces scarcity that need not be there for a virtual plane of existence that doesn't actually need to simulate the real world. I don't get it. And frankly, I don't believe in it yet either. Well, so let me push on that. So we've done a lot of interviews with various Web3 folks on the show. I would say some of the themes there echo the themes you've brought up, right? There's a lot of people who, having built or invested or experienced the last 15 years of the internet, are dissatisfied with where we've landed. Can we build a new internet that more effectively rewards creators, that creates a new kind of internet economy that isn't just about engagement metrics or whatever it is? Yeah. And then you talk about the metaverse and you say, okay, I want to have digital goods. I want to buy and sell things here that creates a world economy that rivals the real world economy. How do you do that without scarcity? How do you, do you just, are are we going to DRM all the virtual clothes? Like there's an element here that it strikes me that you need to create some sort of scarcity. If your goal is to buy and sell 3d digital objects at a rate of transaction that mirrors the real world. So it's really interesting, and this is where we get into a fundamental break between how different believers in the metaverse actually imagine the value. Just as I'm not a huge believer in, well, not a believer in scarce virtual land that costs thousands, if not millions of dollars, there's probably a pretty low ceiling to virtual goods and apparel. They're usually in support of experiences, and it's the experiences that either drive the underlying value, that's the case in Fortnite, not the items per se, or it's what we would consider graphics-based computing or simulation at large. Let me make that less abstract. Jensen Huang, the founder and CEO of NVIDIA, now the seventh largest company globally, believes that the economy of the metaverse will eventually exceed that of the physical world. So we're talking 51%. Right now, that would be $50 trillion per year in spending. He's not at all interested in virtual clothes nor leisure at all. He's basically talking about real-time 3D simulations running the world's best development platform, which is the world. A building, infrastructure, where goods flow and why, how you programmatically advertise in 3D space, often for physical things. That doesn't require scarcity of, you know, the odd avatar, certainly. Explain that a little more directly. So... When you say the best development platform in the world is the world itself, you mean the 3D environment that you're in, that world? The physical world, the one that you are standing on, that you exist in right now, that has many of the attributes that I mentioned, persistence, maximum capacity, et cetera. I'll give perhaps two examples are helpful. NVIDIA redesigned its headquarters, and what they did was a real-time rendered 3D simulation. And what that was used for was to understand from every design choice what happens when you put a piece of window in one spot, when you use one construction material or another. At exactly 3.22 p.m. in the conference hall on November 22nd, what's the climate implication? How do you simulate the flow of energy, of heat, the refraction of light to drive energy? right, to operate the building. We're seeing that premise being used to operate airports in real time so that we can be smarter about, do we really want to move the flight from gate 82 to gate 80 because it's close by? Or should we actually move it farther away for safety reasons in case there's a flash flood, fire, terrorist event for operational efficacy? We're talking about making the entire physical world with an augmented layer on top of it legible to software in real time impacting production flows in a factory, 
the flow of people in a facility and so forth. Connect that to the metaverse for me. This is a concept that is often called digital twins. So you've built a digital twin of an airport. You've built a digital twin of your office building. Those are operating. They can proceed down different timelines based on different choices to give you a sense of what might happen if you make physical changes in the world. Do they interact? So someone is going from the digital twin of your office to the digital twin of the airport. Is that where you think the metaverse is? Because I, I think the idea of simulating physical environments more directly, more accurately is very powerful. The idea that then there will be some layer of commerce in those digital twins that is independent of what is happening in the real world seems like the big step. There's two things to unpack. Number one is digital twins aren't the metaverse. Mm -hmm. Much like you would say, if the internet is a network of networks, different autonomous systems exchanging information consistently under common protocols, then a digital twin is like an office network. It's the Vox Ethernet. It's the interconnection with other digital twins, other simulation for the exchange of information, your user identity, your payment history, your avatar, if you so choose, that is what collectively produces the metaverse. But in this instance, there is not necessarily any utility of you, the consumer, mm -hmm. exploring the digital twin of the environment you're in for any purpose. Now, you might wear augmented glasses in 2037, in which case a version of that digital twin is being overlaid selectively to you. But look, I also don't agree with the premise that we're going to be in an airport and then put on a headset or take out our device to go navigate the thing that we're in. That's so you're saying you don't agree with the premise that there will be pervasive augmented reality. No, no, I do. I do. My point is the digital twin is more, at least foreseeably, a B2B application, not something that you, the consumer, is going to log into and explore. There's very little practical value right now in you saying, I want to go navigate, you know, MIA, that being the Miami airport rather than the code sign in a 3D digital twin. It's not interesting, not useful. Doesn't mean that it isn't super valuable to the operator. As you describe all this stuff, there are a bunch of very hard technical problems to solve to make this all work. If I build a digital twin on NVIDIA's platform of the airport, and then someone builds another digital twin on another platform for the office building, it's not just me, the person who built the digital twin that needs to want to interoperate the platforms need a core capability to interoperate. If I want to jump from Roblox to Fortnite to keep using that example, those companies have to agree that my avatar can go between the worlds. If I buy a gun in one video game and I want to go to another video game and that gun is a hundred times more powerful in the second video game, I might just wreck it for everyone. Some of that is technical and a very difficult technical problem. Some of that is cultural. Some of that is straight up business and politics. Have you seen the beginnings of solutions to those problems? So you're right. Most technology problems are only masquerading as technical problems. They're actually business and or societal problems, as in, can we agree? In general, most in the games community, and I share this opinion, see limited benefit from taking your gun or avatar from one environment to another. That's not to say that there isn't some utility, and particularly with cosmetics with no functional value, there's, it's easier. 
But at the end of the day, how important is it that I can wear a banana peely skin in Call of Duty? Probably not that important. And the technical impediments, not to mention the commercial ones, plus creative, are pretty high. But when you take a look at industrial simulation, the utility there is a lot higher, but the technical solutions are already in place. You mentioned NVIDIA's Omniverse platform. It's not really a platform in the sense that you would say Roblox or Minecraft. It's actually more of a middleware simulation DMZ. It's actually where Dassault and Boeing take their simulations and interconnect them with NVIDIA's machine learning, upscaling, downscaling, translating, and then operating that simulation. But there's a lot of work to do. If you want to talk about what's the progress, A, we do have some standards groups. Again, there's an old XKCD joke that basically says, what happens when 14 people disagree about 14 competing standards is you get a 15th standard that no one uses. And so I don't want to be too optimistic there. (laughs) But what you see with Epic is one potential example. They launched their Epic Online Services. That's a live services suite for independent game developers. And if game developers want to also access Epic's 500 million account user base with three and a half billion user connections, and at this point, 30 billion in invested avatars and skins, they can. Which is to say, just like New York Times taps into Facebook's account system to speed up the user flow, not to say that they don't prefer their own account, but they recognize there's utility in getting some information. You and I can go make a game and then access Epic's avatar suite and its users, therefore driving from smaller developers, less endowed technically and financially, to consolidate around their conventions, their file types, their engine, to tap into their networks. I feel like we're bouncing back and forth between where the money is now and where the money will be in the future in a way that is to some extent making my head spin. So you are saying the money in the future is not just avatars and skins and items. It's some massive B2B market where the real world is being simulated at a level of high fidelity and some revenue will be created there as different businesses find different things to do with each other. The money right now is very much in Fortnite skins, right? And like, how do you go from one to the other? Well, so there's two points there. I don't mean to oscillate, but between the two, my point is rather that when people express skepticism as to whether or not standards and interoperability can be achieved, it's important to say that that progress is happening. We had cross-platform gaming in 2018. We have common account systems and entitlement systems for Epic. And then we have the Omniverse platform for Enterprise. But the fundamental tension that you're talking about kind of stems from the fact that game engines, 3D simulations for decades have essentially been good enough for leisure and not good enough for much else. Unreal, for example, is a non-deterministic physics engine. That means that you throw a grenade eight times, you might get seven different answers somewhere. It's only recently that the fidelity of the simulation, the sophistication of the simulation, and frankly, the investment that Epic made has, has made into vertical solutions, makes it practical for deployment in healthcare, in military, in education, in automotive. And so we're very early on that deployment curve, then you need to get it right, then you need people to adopt it, and so forth. And that's one of the reasons why we struggle with this odd juxtaposition of talking about the trillion dollar metaverse economy, 
while turning over and saying, right, but we're talking about $200 billion in gaming spend, mostly on cosmetics. We need to take a quick break, but when we come back, we're going to be talking about emoji and how standards will play a part in the metaverse. We'll be right back. Support for Decoder comes from Mint Mobile. Imagine you're at a very fancy, expensive restaurant. And as you're browsing the menu, wondering how you'll afford anything on it, you notice the filet mignon is a mere $10. At first you think jackpot, but then you immediately think, wait, what's the catch? Now, what do suspiciously cheap steaks have to do with your cell phone bill? Well, we're used to seeing quote-unquote great deals from overpriced wireless providers and also thinking, what's the catch? But with Mint Mobile, there is no catch. For a limited time, their wireless plans are just $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan. You can get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month. Go to mintmobile.com slash decoder. That's mintmobile.com slash decoder. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash decoder. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on an unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Support for this podcast comes from Constant Contact. If you're a business owner, you already know that it's really, really hard to cut through the noise of everyday life. If you want to connect with your customers, you need to break through the noise. You need Constant Contact. Constant Contact is a marketing platform that makes it easy to reach new audiences, grow your customer list, and connect over email, text, social media, and more. Whether you're a marketing guru or just learning the ropes, Constant Contact offers writing assistance tools and automation features that make it simple to say the right thing at the right time. So get going and start growing your business today with a free trial at ConstantContact.com. Just go to ConstantContact.com right now. Constant Contact, helping the small stand tall. ConstantContact.com. We're back. As we talk about the metaverse, the thing I keep coming back to is the interconnection between the different worlds. To me, that's where the value multiplier is. You can build all this stuff as one-offs, and all you've really ended up with is AOL and CompuServe. And then you connect those things together and connect them to 100 different networks and servers, and you multiply the value of all of it. Everyone rushes into it because it's so compelling that you can't say no, and then suddenly you end up in 2022 and... Every now and again, I'm like, maybe we should turn it off, right? Like it it eats the world in a way that seems remarkable. But the immediate compelling use of the internet was obvious to everyone in the sense that, I don't know, you wanted to look up movie times. You could just do it faster. Wikipedia just came into existence and suddenly the Encyclopedia Britannica seemed unwieldy and old and not up to date anymore. And that has replaced the ability to look up anything. The other day I was cooking and I wanted to figure out how to cook something. And I just watched the YouTube video and that was the end of it. I knew how to do it. And we were off to the races. Where are the compelling immediate uses of the metaverse that showcase that multiplicative effect beyond you can just get to the Boeing simulation faster? Well, so it's interesting. I mean, to start with 
I would personally disagree as to whether or not the utility of the internet was self-evident. I mean, we have the classic Paul Krugman example is late in 1998, specifically about oh, I'm not a saying piece. some people weren't wrong. I'm saying that I was very smart. I'm kidding. <laughs> no, no I, I agree with you. I just mean like one of the weird things is that transition point was actually relatively late, right? Even as late as I think 1996, there were fewer than 50 million Americans who would use the internet in a month, right? And most of that use case was pretty frivolous. When I was in high school, Wikipedia was seen as deleterious, right? It, it actually worsened education. And so I think that's part of it. But what we're seeing here is really network effects in the sense that, and I, I don't mean to be evasive, partly because we're talking about combinatorial innovation that isn't yet present yet and therefore remains speculative. But I think the fundamental argument would be, if you take a look at the world economy as an example, it's not that having independent nations and industries wasn't hugely profitable. It was. It's that the utility of all investments of all products in all markets went up. In the social era, we easily take for granted that anything we create works everywhere. I create text, audio, video, and I can take it anywhere. I can take a photo with my iPhone. It stores to iCloud. And I don't have to say, well, darn, now I can't put it on Facebook. I can put it on Facebook, right-click, save as, upload it to Snapchat, screenshot it on Snapchat, and put it into TikTok. The utility of global commerce and trade, the utility of having common file formats is really profound in the internet. It's so hard to create in 3D. And then you have this question of, okay, well, now the thing that you want to do in 3D, well, your partner, to your point, is using a different system. Unity and Unreal actually use different XYZ coordinates, if you can believe. It's kind of intuitive to say that at this point, if we've literally had hundreds of billions of dollars in 3D assets invested, which we have, that all of those essentially get deprecated after their first use. That means that we either need to remake them or we just will never use them. So that's part of the premise here. I'll give you a counterexample there, which is emoji. Emoji is a big standard. It's run by a consortium, uh, but it's rendered differently by every phone, by every platform. So the smiley face emoji. Um, no, I'm an Android guy. I know well. Yeah, but it's the grimace emoji, right? That on Samsung phones for a long time, it looked like it was smiling. So Samsung owners were sending people grimaces when they meant they were smiles or vice versa. Um you have a 3D file format. Everyone's agreed, okay, this is the one. How do you make sure it's rendered across all these systems? Is that just over time where you know, Samsung's going to realize, like, a lot of people are confused by our emoji. We should come together with Apple and make sure they look the same. Google had to go from blobs to faces. Very controversial in Verge World, I would point out. Um, but like, I like the blobs. People love the blobs, and Google got rid of them because Apple was dominant and they needed to conform to what Apple emoji looked like. Do you see that playing out with 3d objects that the way that an outfit or an, a briefcase looks in Fortnite will eventually come to dominate what it looks like everywhere else? So I think number one, the example with emoji is a good one because it's an example of where slow moving standards bodies, even when they are successful, end up being corralled through, standard participants who aren't overtly saying, here's what the standard should be, but drive all of the other members along. That actually helps with standardization. 
when you're talking about 3D objects, look, there's a large contingent who believe that the consumer-facing 3D objects are less important. Bringing your briefcase from one environment to another is less important than having the environment itself useful to more developers to be repurposable. To take the investment that Disney has made into Hoth or Nauvoo for The Mandalorian and making that easily used by Peloton for a virtual biking course to Tinder if they want to put in a dating simulation to a theme park or to Fortnite. That's probably more useful. But when it comes to your question of visual cohesion, it's not just a question of how do you want to express. It's about what dimensions do you need? What density, pixel density do you have? And the technology in particular from Intel for machine learning to up and down scale is pretty strong. You can take a 2D object and 3Dify it. You can say, you know, the Verge makes virtual shoes that don't separate between the sole and the fabric, but our system can actually separate the two for different designing. A lot of that is going to be interpretive software that takes what is not standardized and modifies it. I feel like this is beginning to unlock for me in a... In a important way. So Unreal has moved, as you said, into Hollywood. It's moved into cars. You just see this graphical engine appear in more and more places where graphics need to be rendered. And it feels like part of your idea is, all right, you've done all of the work to shoot a movie. I think The Mandalorian did this. Other uh, big productions have done this, where the background is actually rendered on giant LED monitors behind the actors in Unreal. But the same work that has been done, the same virtual world is now available to Peloton to say, we're going to bike through the virtual world of Mandalorian. And that is somehow an open platform for that kind of development. You're quite right. Let me frame it a slightly different way. Entertainment is such a good example, right? You have Disney will spend $100 million producing backdrops and virtual environments for a film. Those are essentially all deprecated. They're increasingly used for the next film, but that's about it. And what does that mean? Well, if Peloton wants to build a Star Wars driving sim or biking sim, they need to build it all. What does that mean? Well, the business case mightn't be there. In addition, Disney might say, well, we've got to make the thing and then we've got to brand approve the thing. And so we need to charge a lot. And so a lot of this doesn't happen. Once you start to standardize these 3D assets, you start to say, well, we've made this investment and now we can use it wherever we want or at least more extensively without building it anew. When you take that from just consumer leisure and start to talk about it from, well, Ford has dimensionalized its next Ford escape and now we want to simulate it in other enterprise environments, in a car park for parking simulations for vehicular design. When you say that a Hummer vehicle uses its LiDAR sensors to map the local environment, then you can pre-drive that environment in your Land Rover from your car like a video game to make sure that you can make the path. Making all of this information more repurposable starts to have extreme combinatorial effect either by making new creations easier or cheaper. Who controls the access and the connections between those things in your view of the metaverse, right? Because that seems like a very powerful vision. And then I start to pull the thread and it's okay. Disney has rendered out the world of the Mandalorian. And I'm like, 
I want to put the Verge on the world of the Mandalorian. We're going to make print versions of the Verge for the Mandalorian. Yeah. Right, like, I can imagine all these things we could do. It feels like I still have to go get permission. Maybe the asset is cheaper, but over time, content creation gets cheaper and cheaper anyway. Where where does the sort of the technical part of now it's available come from? Because that seems like the actually the, maybe the hardest problem that we've been we've been talking about. Yeah, for which there's there's no simple answer. I mean, these environments are managed centrally. Their permissions are going to be managed deliberately to start. And if we've learned anything from the Shutterstock era and TurboSquid or Quixel or 3D asset databases, you know, the most valuable stuff, the IP, is not easily or cheaply licensed. This is where we get into one of those fundamental questions of decentralization versus centralization. There are good arguments to be made that the last 15 years were too centralized because the internet protocol suite has too little in it. We can get into that, you know, one way or another. But there are many forms of centralization that have nothing to do with technology per se. Revenue leads to greater investment in better products. IP centralizes or drives habit and retention. Brand keeps people inside of a system that they trust more than another. And so even if you believe that the metaverse is a big disruptive next generation internet, if you believe in the wide deployment of blockchain and Web3 to democratize more of the stack, OpenSea is a great example of how we may still end up with no technical barriers to switching, but enormous habit and brand-based or IP-based stickiness to a few. Let's talk about Web3 a little bit. We, we're, we're here. I feel like we've arrived at the Web3 portion of the conversation. The ideas are in parallel, right? The amount of Web3 hype that has happened over the past 18 months is right next to the amount of metaverse hype. It feels like everybody wants to conflate them for some reason. Certainly it is trendy in the business world to conflate them, to juice your stock price in some insane way. Um, they're not necessarily connected, but it does feel like the game of what are some use cases for web three is best answered by there will be scarce digital objects in the metaverse. There is a connection there in that one of the open technical questions of how these 3D worlds might work and how you might transact in them is actually answered by the blockchain, by Web3 technologies. Do you see that connection as directly? Do you think it is just a quirk of timing? Do you think there are other solutions possible? So I think that there are a few different things that we can unpack here. First and foremost, I and others, Mark Zuckerberg, Tim Sweeney, describe the metaverse as a successor state or quasi-successor to today's internet. Web3 is so named because it succeeds Web 2.0. If both things come after the current thing, it makes sense that you have conflation. In addition, there's a good reason to believe that the philosophies at minimum or perhaps the technology at maximum of blockchain are essential or important to the metaverse, which is to say property rights are probably going to be important. They're important to most economies. The ability to tap into decentralized or wide networks of contributors to provide extra GPU cycles or broadband or just time and assets, which are currently hard to accumulate from individuals. Patreon only scales so much. Good reasons to believe that that's important to having a thriving metaverse, one we want rather than one that's just technically possible. And so I understand why the two are conflated, but I would say that they're separate. What you're talking about when you're talking about 
a good technological solution is when you talk about interoperability, you need a standard, you need someone to effectively take custody of an object, and you need everyone to agree that they trust it. The big problem that we have right now is EA and Activision don't have a good system to exchange anything. They certainly don't want to use one another's new thing, should it exist. And when other aggregators like Steam have tried in the past, no one opts in because the platform is already powerful enough. And so irrespective of whether or not blockchains are actually the ideal solution, they clearly have some revenue attached, speculative or not. They are proving themselves to get a wide collection of different deployed solutions. And at the end of the day, it's not always important whether something's perfect insofar as whether or not everyone uses it. The GIF file format is awful. (laughs) We've known that for decades. And yet everyone uses it. And so that ends up being the thing. And so that, to me, is part of the case. One of the very hard problems with all of this is the amount of compute that's required. So we're going to render a bunch of persistent virtual worlds that have unlimited maximum capacity, and then potentially we're going to run blockchains to manage scarce digital goods inside those virtual worlds. That is a lot of compute. It's more compute than we have right now. Do you see that just coming down because of Moore's Law? Is it... TSMC is going to figure out the next process node and we're just going to get there. Is it an agglomeration of other kinds of compute? Who builds this stuff? Where does it come from? There's three dominant theories here. One is just Moore's law, slowing or not, continues to improve. And as part of that, we get better at compression. We do start to prune out the inelegant data formats and architectures. Again, like we are moving off of GIF to MP4, lighter, more performant. The second school is really organized around more efficient resourcing. This is the cloud argument. There are problems with it, but the argument would basically be that it's kind of stupid that we put the most intensive computing at the individual user whose device has to be affordable, lightweight, replaced every two to three years, versus the power plant approach of saying no one should have a generator in their home. We should deliver it from industrial scale. Again, flaws from it, but that's one argument. And then the third are the bigger punts. There's a large contingent of people, Intel, TSMC, who are starting to believe that quantum computing, another idea that has long been considered fanciful, is no longer a crazy thing to believe in and ends up being essential. But then the last and the most fun is decentralized computing, not necessarily in the blockchain sense, but in the solar panel sense. I'm sitting talking to you right now. I have two consoles with incredible GPUs, both sitting unused. There may be someone in my building right now who could use the extra GPU. Right now, they either don't have it or they need to rent it from a data center that is expensive and far away, thus producing latency. And so do you have a model, potentially on blockchain or not, that is a more effective system of renting out excess capacity like a solar panel or like Elon imagines Tesla's will do in a self-driving era. Let's pull on that thread too. I love that idea. And I've heard variations of this idea for a decade now. I used to run SETI at home on the computers in the the college computer lab that I manage. It's in my book. It's so fun. It's all right there. Uh, We've been chasing it for a minute. That requires, right, your personal power bill might go up and down in ways that you cannot predict. 
your bandwidth might get strained in a way that you couldn't predict. It would be sad if right now our call was diminished in quality because someone was running the GPU in your PS5 at 100%. And then on, on top of that, at least in this country, the bandwidth required to do that is actually not evenly or equitably distributed, right? Some people have really fast connections. Many people have bad connections. There is virtually no competition for those connections whatsoever. You can make that bet, but I, you think about how it would play out in practice, and it just feels like a lot of people will be selfish, first of all. That seems like a thing you can count on. And then second of all, the infrastructure to actually pull that off does not really exist. I agree with you. I, I characterize it as the fun one because it remains the elusive one. Just like when we talk to talk about peer-to-peer servers for multiplayer games. Fun idea. No one's figured out how to do it. There are some technical solutions, of course, one of which could be you don't necessarily need to congest the neighborhood if you geographically constrain who your GPUs are available to. Of course, you can also have different bidding one of the problems I talk about in the book is the fact that we actually have very poor systems in TCPIP to manage the prioritization of traffic once it leaves our network. And I'm not talking about paid peering or net neutrality, just literally the ability to differentiate between does this need to be there in 10 milliseconds or 50 milliseconds? But so these are actually more fundamental issues. GPUs, we don't have an effective way to split them. It's not like you can say I need 80% of it, but the remaining 20% can go. But I will say that there are some systems for this that are being deployed. J.J. Abrams and Ari Emanuel are on the board of a company called Otoy. They have a blockchain-based system called the Render Network. And it is designed to do exactly that, an architectural firm that perhaps doesn't need its high-end GPUs overnight, can rent those out on a bid-ask blockchain-based system, and Hollywood studios do use them. Now, this isn't the expectation of every single person's sitting device is used minute to minute, but at least for industrial use cases on more regular basis with some high-end, low-supply hardware, we're starting to see it work. But again, I, I put this in the if you woke up in 2045, it might be answered. Bucket. We need to take one more break, but when we come back, I'm going to ask Matthew how some of the biggest companies in the world are positioned to build the metaverse. Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens, with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. 
We're back with Matthew Ball. Let's wrap up here by talking about the companies that are building this stuff now and where they are. You run an ETF called Meta that invests in various metaverse companies. You obviously pay very close attention. Let's start with the obvious candidate here, uh, Meta, which in your book you call Facebook because it's too confusing to call Meta Meta in a book about the metaverse, which I appreciated. Facebook obviously rebranded itself to Meta. Zuckerberg is all in on this pivot to the metaverse. In VR headsets, at least, they're the market leader. The Quest 2 is a, a really good consumer product. I don't know if it's a metaverse product. It's a pretty closed system. But they're ahead. How do you think they're doing, and where do you think they go next? I would actually say that the Oculus device is pretty open, actually. They support sideloading. They don't require a central identity system. You can use alternative payment solutions for sideloaded apps. Or It's not even sideloading. It's just not App Store Direct. And the Oculus is unique in that it's the only mainstream console, effectively, that uses open standard rendering collections, WebGL, OpenGL, WebXR, uh, WebGL. Those are pretty significant. No one else did it. PlayStation 3 did it, and PlayStation has never done it since. But if you're talking about who's ahead, the truth is, if you were to talk about number of users, amount of spend, number of developers, amount of developer profits, cultural impact, they're frankly nowhere near leads like Roblox, Fortnite, Minecraft, Unity on the B2B side. And they have a much harder path to doing that. One of the challenges Facebook in particular has is the economy is slowing down. Apple's ad changes when they introduced App tracking transparency, or ATT, has had huge effects on Facebook's revenue. They're trying to manage this big pivot and the bet on the future. People might buy fewer Quest consoles. They're investing less in future hardware. Do you think they're going to be able to make it through? I mean, look, the ATT shift from Apple is brutal. The estimated cost of that is $10 billion in operating cash flow in 2022. That happens to be exactly what Facebook Reality Labs was spending on their many projects. Various XR devices, wearables, their operating system, the Horizon Worlds platform. Anyone finding out that they're going to have $10 billion less in cash flow is going to have to trim budgets, especially in special projects with limited revenue and probably a negative 80% gross margin overall. I think the biggest challenge, and one that Mark has consistently underestimated, it seems, is the timeline for those new devices, which would allow him to get out from the hegemony of Apple in particular, but Apple and Google, is probably farther out than was ever imagined. 2015 was the first time Mark said publicly, they imagined by the end of the decade, last decade, wearable headsets would replace the smartphone. They have reiterated that this decade. But as you and your colleagues have reported, they've now delayed the first edition three times this decade. We may not see consumer AR hardware until 25, 26. And he's called it the hardest technological challenge of our era, putting a supercomputer into lightweight wearables. If that is their biggest opportunity to have hardware, to have their own operating system, and they're already sitting behind when it comes to what I call integrated virtual world platforms. This is Horizon versus Roblox, Fortnite creative mode. And they're simultaneously experiencing decline, not necessarily secular, but decline of the core business. The timing starts to feel tight. You said that it's the hardest technological challenge. 
I always think about it as the stack of problems, right? Especially for AR glasses. You need a camera that can see the world around you in sufficient fidelity. That's got to go to a processor that can interpret that data and spit out something good to put over top of it to augment reality. You need a battery that can power that processor and that camera. You almost certainly need persistent connectivity. And then most importantly, you need a display solution that actually works, which doesn't exist yet. Do you think Facebook is on the road to solving any or all of those problems? I would add you two more, right? It has to actually fit and weigh little enough that you're comfortable wearing it. And it has to not melt your face while you do it. <laughs> right. And every single thing that you just mentioned trades off with one another. You want another two sensors that's good for UIX. It drains the battery and the GPU power, increasing the cost, increasing the form factor, generating more heat. Put another way, we take for granted that today's most computationally powerful consumer devices, consoles, really just need to manage for a few constraints. The size, not really, right? The new PlayStations are four times bigger than the first PlayStation. They don't need to manage for battery. They have constant access to power. They can put fans in there so that the overheating problem isn't that bad. And they know that the build of materials has to cost between four and $700. When you're talking about these devices, you have several new problems, size, heat, you can't have a fan, you need battery power, and all of the other things get harder despite that, right? The GPUs are smaller. We see that Facebook is investing in its own semis, and you're right, it's the stack. All of these things need to be solved. We know that Apple is planning up to 12 or 14 cameras I think the current Oculus has six. Well, maybe you need 12. Maybe you need 14. Every time you put another pair in there, you're going to find that the GPU you thought was going to power Experience X can't. It's incredibly hard. So that's Facebook, right? And I think that set of challenges is very difficult for them. When we talk about hardware, we have to go to Apple next. Apple's very good at hardware. They're very good at performance chips that run a long time in batteries. There are lots of rumors about Apple's headset out there, but they're pretty bad at ecosystems and playing nice with others, interoperability. And as you mentioned with their ad tracking stuff, they're pretty good at locking things down. They're pretty good at preventing innovation from taking place. Like game streaming does not exist the way it could because Apple won't allow it on their platforms. OpenSea can't transact to NFTs because they'd have to pay Apple a 30% cut. How do you think Apple's doing? Look, I think one thing that's fun to put on the side of this is six days before Epic Games sued Apple, Tim Sweeney, the founder and CEO, tweeted out that Apple had outlawed the metaverse. And his point was exactly the cloud gaming one. And I cite The Verge a few times in there with these fun quotes where The Verge basically says, arguing about what Apple does or doesn't allow is irrelevant because they can change the rules anytime they want. The Apple constraint here is really profound. They have incredible hard, soft, and often accidental power. And they do work hard to prevent many standards and solutions coming into place. My favorite example, you just teed up what happens with NFTs. Let's keep in mind, they allow you to buy fungible tokens, ETH on Coinbase, but you can't buy a non-fungible token, an NFT on Coinbase. 
But if you choose to fractionalize an <laughs> NFT into a billion fungible tokens, a billion, you could actually increase it so that there are more fractionalized tokens than there are Bitcoin tokens. That's still not allowed, even though you might own one trillionth of an NFT. And this just reflects the extent to which they are contending with, yes, business model disruption, but control of their own ecosystem. Outlawing is not wrong. I think we will see how that comes. But look, when it comes to new hardware, it's obvious if AR and VR are going to be things, Apple will be at least a player, but it's more likely that they have the most performant, best looking, lightest weight and preferred early editions. The advantage is there, especially at scale and cost, development cost or production cost are simple. One of the things in the book that I thought was really interesting is you have a section about how the metaverse need not actually take place in headsets, right? It, it, it could be expressed in all kinds of ways. As we talk about these companies, their metaverse bets are very much headsets, right? Like we're going to – Facebook wants to be first to headsets at scale because then they can just leave the iPhone and the complications of Apple's platform behind. Apple does not want to have the iPhone disrupted. They're racing towards a headset. Tim Cook, I think, wants to ship the AR headset as his – last big reveal before he moves on. He said he's going to move on in 10 years. But there's right now to do a non-headset metaverse, you are kind of just stuck behind whatever Apple will allow because they're the most pervasive computing platform that exists. That's quite right. Is there a way around that? Is that just let's hope Amy Klobuchar can find the votes for her antitrust bill? Or is there is there a business model or industry solution that solves that? Well, so this is where we get into some of the interesting answers. And is there a way around it? Are there alternatives? Yes and no. Cloud gaming is a potential answer, but we should keep in mind exactly how many ways Apple stymies them. For example, yes, cloud gaming can work. It's not a great technical solution. In fact, it probably works 95% of the time for 40% of users. Not a good solution for a social platform, but it can work. But doing it from the browser is not a great experience. Apple, for security reasons, valid and not valid, also constrains your ability to send notifications, right? Not great if I'm trying to tell you to log on to Fortnite, but first of all, you can't have an app. Secondly, you don't ever get the notification. The other way to do it is browser-based rendering, but Apple has historically constrained WebGL. And so the non-application alternative using a browser, what they call the open web, doesn't really work. And the way in which Apple constrains WebGL is because Safari doesn't support it comprehensively. And whereas I can download Chrome for iOS, I'm really just using the Chrome wrapper on the Safari engine. And so their technical decisions for Safari means what Google can and can't do is inherited. And the app store's hegemony over software means that I can't download true Chrome. And so what we're finding out is why Tim sued Apple, why he says that Apple has outlawed the metaverse rather than gotten in its way, which is a properly motivated Apple can effectively stymie most things. There's a reason why Web3 games are either based on non-real-time collecting and trading or really primitive browser-based games like Axie Infinity visually. And that's because you can't pull off complex rendering without most of WebGL or a native app. And Apple won't allow it. 
You mentioned the open web, which means we should talk about Google next. Google is Google. They have multiple competing projects. They've just restructured some things. They've announced some little things. Are they a player? So it's a great question. Google, of course, has spent quite some time focused here. Google Glass was, yes, a famous disaster, but they've released another two versions of Google Glass or Enterprise Editions. They made a billion-dollar acquisition last year, a $200 million acquisition the year before. Clay Bavor, an SVP in charge of essentially all special projects, plus AR and VR, and has been for some years, was realigned, as you mentioned, to directly report to Sundar. And so it's clear that they're focused here. The problem has always been their software is never considered best for consumer applications. Their hardware has never really taken off. Their efforts in gaming have barely been funded. Many of their best potential plays, Niantic and others, were divested or spun off or allowed to competitors. If Android is and remains the most used ecosystem globally, it's the second highest revenue generating games platform globally, they're likely to benefit. But the big opportunities, new hardware, a virtual world platform, managing the standards all seems tough. Even when you take a look at Google Cloud, it's estimated to be losing five or six billion per year. AWS has more profit than Google Cloud does in revenue. And so even the tangential argument that increased computing power is going to be good for Google, their business currently loses money every time a new server is stood (laughs) up. And so that's, they're harder to see. You mentioned AWS. Let's keep going down the list. Amazon has some pretensions here in the sense that they have a big hardware division that invents a bunch of stuff all the time. They have the most pervasive voice assistant, which is, I think is an interesting sort of sidelight into the idea of a, a secondary world that you can interact with in different ways. Are, are they a player? Do you see them making an investment? So I'd probably guess that they are number one in virtual assistant hardware, but I would also guess that Siri and Google Assistant are probably the most used virtual assistants. And of course, they have the other benefit of having the device everywhere, right? Mobile, better tailored. Amazon's really interesting. Of course, the computing and data center business is going to be an extraordinary beneficiary. How much that moves into value-added services and machine learning and others is as yet to be known. And Snowflake is a good example of other companies building value-add services on top of you know, the pure racks. But the bigger challenge is the one that I find really interesting, which is Amazon has spent a lot of time focused on more traditional media categories than it has in gaming or interactive, even though the latter seems a lot closer to their core business, at least the AWS side. And their success rate has been mixed. Jason Trier at Bloomberg has estimated billions were spent into Lumberyard, their game engine. That was given over to the Linux Foundation earlier this year. Luna, their cloud gaming service, seems to have had less of an impact than Google Stadia did. <laughs> Amazon It's a very games, quiet burn. I just want to put that out there. <laughs> well, it, it, there's a good question of whether or not it's a quiet burn because <laughs> they've been a lot quieter as well. And so part of the problem that Doom Stadia was much bigger and more public ambitions and much greater out-of-the-gate spend. Amazon is 
best in the world at the slow burn strategy, and they remain committed to it, though I haven't seen any big leaps. And while Amazon Game Studio has had some success with New World and others more recently, it's operating as the publisher. It's not developing the titles themselves, and they're not using AWS in an innovative or new way. And so as you take a look at Amazon's interactive business, they've rewritten many job descriptions to focus on the metaverse in name. They're a big proponent of the Unreal ecosystem. They're trying to advance certain standards. But a lot of it still feels externally like more potential and conjecture than it is as yet product. I want to ask about two more here. Microsoft CEO Sasha Nadella has said the metaverse is already here. He, he's buying Activision. He has the Xbox. That seems to be growing. They keep buying everything. But they don't have great hardware. The HoloLens is not a huge success. They just shuffled that team and fired Alex Kipman, who was in charge of the HoloLens. Are they on track or are they just going to be a horizontal software provider, which has been an enormously successful strategy for them, as you've pointed out? Yeah, I think two things that are interesting as you think of Microsoft. Number one, and I talk about this a bit in the book, there's this fascinating aspect of Microsoft, which is, yes, the company has absolutely thrived under Satya by becoming horizontal, shedding the stack requirement and rich vertical integration. But when Satya took over, the games business was being called on for divestment. And yet the first acquisition he did was of Minecraft. And he did something really unique at the time. And that was he committed to keeping it fully horizontal, available on all platforms, not exclusive to Xbox, and keeping it agnostic to the endpoint, not even preferring Xbox hardware. And then, of course, it was about five or six years before he did another large acquisition, that of LinkedIn. And then you have Activision Blizzard, the most expensive big tech acquisition in history, at $75 billion. And in the opening graph, the last line, he says it's for the foundations of the metaverse. In many ways, Minecraft presaged everything that he was going to do, the strategy at large, and they have been very focused here. The number of different pieces that they have is actually really exciting. I talk about Microsoft Flight Simulator as perhaps the most technically impressive consumer-deployed, persistent, live digital twin or metaverse-style experience that any of us can do. And so this is a company where putting aside the fact they were public about the metaverse before Facebook was, it feels like execution, bringing the pieces together, which is the same for Google, the same for Amazon, but less clear, could be extraordinary for them. And I think that's why you've always seen this commitment and why he's so quick to bet FTC scrutiny, DOJ scrutiny, $75 billion to build it. I could keep doing companies forever. It's a fun game. But I want to end actually on the regulatory scrutiny piece. This space is unregulated in a way that if you make the comparison to the early internet, it's very different, right? The early internet was a government project. There was the idea that we would keep regulators away from it. But even that decision to keep regulators away from it is itself a regulatory decision. And then you had all of the public investment into the internet around the world. That's not happening here, right? This is all kind of a purely private company kind of investment. And regulators seem like they have no idea what to do here in a way that even like regulators have no idea what to do with crypto, but they have a lot of ideas here. It's just silence. Where do you think that comes into play? Where do you think the government 
comes into play here with the metaverse? Well, so the interesting thing about regulators leaving their hands off on the internet is, of course, the internet came from government and many of its foundational bodies, the Internet Engineering Task Force, which stewards most of TCPIP, was developed by DOD and then relinquished, but still strongly influenced by government. And that is to say, one of the reasons why governments left it was because there was a pretty strong and important self-regulating body, actually there were many, that worked together pretty effectively that they had helped to create. You're right that we don't see this here. I actually think it is changing pretty quickly. Yesterday, the EU released their think tank's policy memorandum. The chief negotiator of the EU for the Digital Services Act has been very critical, very vocal about what they need. The South Korean government has established the South Korean Metaverse Alliance, an effectively required body that is also effectively mandating standards nationally. Their perspective seems to be, yes, the standards group will force things that many don't want and are individually disadvantaged by, but to the national benefit. And of course, in China, which is its whole other issue, I don't think it's a coincidence that just after Tencent unveiled its hyper-digital reality vision, which is their essential trademark for the metaverse, China began the biggest ever crackdown of the space. I think the U.S. is probably the farthest behind in at least formal recommendations. But I think that in many territories, Southeast Asia, China, and the EU, governments seem very focused on this now in a way that surprises and inspires me. The fact that it coincides with regulation designed to fix the problems of the past 15 years raises the specter of accidental damage to an area that doesn't really exist yet. But I'm more hopeful that it actually sets us on a clearer path rather than 15 years of catch up. Let's end with a look to the future. I think one of the things that you and I would both agree on is it, it, this isn't going to be a light switch. The metaverse isn't going to just turn on one day. It's going to happen to us slowly over time. But I'm curious, in that big picture, what is the signpost for you that the metaverse is more likely than not or that it's, it's arrived in a real way? What, what would be the indicator for you? The indicator that I pay attention to is the early demographic transition. 75% of those 9 to 12 in most Western markets use Roblox and just Roblox on a regular basis. That isn't to say that they don't use other things. We know fundamentally Gen Y games more than X, Z more than Y, and A more than Z. And that trend isn't turning around. But I think the big thing that I'm getting excited about are those industrial applications the deployment in what we call ACE, architecture, engineering, and construction. The challenge with those is lead times are long. You have to convince businesses to use new technology to solve problems they're not used to trying to solve. They have to then deploy them. They have to get good at using them. They then need to start to share with the city and with other partners. But once we actually find out a way to make development of the real world more productive and then live operate businesses together and infrastructure together. That can be as simple as lighting systems in a smart city, but proper civil engineering, that's what gets exciting to me. All right. Well, Matt, this has been incredible. I could keep going for another hour. Thank you so much for being on Decoder. Thank you, man. Thanks again to Matthew Ball for taking the time to talk today. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed Decoder. As always, I'd love to hear what you think of the show. 
You can email us at decoder at theverge.com. You can hit me up directly. I'm at Reckless on Twitter. If you like the show, please share it with your friends. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. If you really like Decoder, hit us with that five-star review. And as many of you have discovered, if you tweet about Decoder, I will almost certainly retweet you. Decoder is a production of The Verge and part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. Today's episode was produced by Creighton Simone and Jack McDermott. It was edited by Callie Wright. The Decoder music is by Breakmaster Cylinder. Our senior audio director is Andrew Marino. Our editorial director is Brooke Minters. And our executive producer is Eleanor Donovan. We'll see you next time.